Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Pam Shriver. You're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, Pam, thank you very much for being here. We've spoken to you many times on the Tennis Podcast. I'm very pleased to be able to say that. Um, but this time we're here speaking for a very different reason because... You've got a, a story you'd like to tell that you've never told before. We're very, really honoured, really, that you, you want to tell it to us. Um, where, when and how would, would you like to start with that story? Yeah, well, I want to start really at the beginning. Um, it's a story that I think has been repeated many times, uh, many different ways. But this is my story. And um, it started when I was nine years of age. And I was, uh, I'd already fallen in love with the sport of tennis. Uh, I lived in Baltimore, Maryland, where winter times didn't play much indoors. Uh, but for Christmas, uh, the year I was nine, I got a, a gift certificate for a tennis lesson at the indoor club where my mom played all her tennis. And so I took a tennis lesson from a coach, and uh, he was Australian, um, and he had moved to Baltimore just uh a few years before, and I took just one lesson. And then, um, you know, it was a funny lesson. I remember very like, like a typical Aussie of sense of humor, and I, had a, I remember I had a great time. But then I didn't play again for months, and I don't think I had another lesson from this coach for, you know, maybe a couple of years. And then when I was about 11 or 12, um, you know, my parents realized it was t- – time and I was I really was asking for it I wanted to start playing more tennis year-round get coached uh, by the best I could in Baltimore so I started taking regular lessons and um, my tennis really improved um, I started to get to know this coach better and um, so began a journey that would last um, a long time and have um, some really uh, complicated twists and turns uh, in the years that would would follow, but it all it all started from from a Christmas stocking as a nine year old. Do you want to talk about those twists and turns a little bit? Yeah. Well, the first one was a real surprise to me uh, because, uh, from my recollection, I was thirteen years of age. So I'd been taking regular lessons for a couple of years. Um, I stayed in school. I didn't go to academy. I stayed in Baltimore, which has tough winters. But I remember my coach telling me that he and his wife were going to go back down to Australia for most of the winter because, like a lot of Australians, hated 
hated kind of the terrible northeast winter times. And I heard that news, so I knew in starting in a couple of weeks that I wasn't going to have uh, any tennis lessons for a few months. And I just I, I remember still so clearly going back home, um, and I was taking a shower, and I was just started to sob. So here I am, beginning of puberty, um, crying over the fact that my coach was going to be going back down to Australia. And I, I really didn't understand what was going on. Um, but I obviously, I was starting to have feelings for my coach. And I didn't talk to anybody about it. I just, you know, obviously didn't cry that long, and I kind of got through it. And he went down to Australia with his wife, and then eventually when he came back, we started lessons again. So that was the first time where many years later I always remembered crying uh, and I don't remember I, w- I didn't cry easily as a as a kid um, and then I started playing when I was uh, 15 and a half I started playing the pro tour and my mom and my dad um, had three three girls I was the middle um, my younger sister eight and a half years younger my parents were pretty traditional my dad worked full-time never left work early for much of anything, occasionally to see a basketball game or, uh, you know, a tennis, maybe a school tennis match. But it was very traditional. My mom was a a stay-at-home mom, a housewife, and she didn't want to leave to travel the tennis circuit with me because it would have meant leaving my my younger sister at home uh, with my dad working. So... Um, they entrusted this coach that they'd also known for a long, long time. Uh, and basically, he was my chaperone in the early years on the tour. So I started the tour January of 1978. Um, that began my 19 years on the on the tour. And uh, my coach um, was was with me virtually every single tennis match I played up until my early to mid-20s. So from the moment of that sort of the the sobbing in the shower and the the realizing what and why that was, how did that situation develop from there? Well, um, not nothing was ever said about that to anybody that I can remember about me about that early feelings of sadness that my coach was going to be leaving. But the next time. That I, re- that I remember, and this is also a very strong memory. So when I was 16, I, my second major, I got to the U.S. Open final out of the blue. Um, when I say out of the blue, I was actually seated 16. So on my ranking in a short period of time, this is a different era in women's tennis. In the late 70s, nowhere near as many players, your ranking could really make a jump a lot quicker. I'd, I'd been to the round of 32 at Wimbledon, my first major, just a couple of months earlier. But really, getting to a U.S. Open final at 16, um, and my coach helped me so much through that because he had played the circuit uh, in, in, the, in the 50s, and uh, in early 60s. And I, I just should, should mention, so I'm 15, now 16 years of age. He's 33 years older. Uh, he'd been married the whole time I had known him. And, um, but such, so began a very tumultuous first couple of years on the tour for me because a U.S. Open final just 
change my world like it like it would out of nowhere. So and I went back to school. I finished my senior year. And I did I, – I, by the way, I got to that U.S. Open final as an amateur. So no prize money. Um, I wanted to keep college options open. But six months later, I did turn pro. And meanwhile, after that U.S. Open, I hardly won a match for like the next 12 months. Felt all the pressure in the world, um, went out with a target on my back. So it was really a difficult time. And I remember very clearly in the middle of that patch of hardly winning any matches, um, lost another first round uh, in Minneapolis, indoor event. Again, so disappointed. And um, we're in the rent-a-car outside the arena, and my coach is – talking to me about the match and about things I could have done differently or, you know, just sort of the way coaches talk to their players. And I just started sobbing, 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 sobbing. And I can remember very clearly saying, there's something else, there's something else here. And, you know, there was like this pause and I can't remember exactly whether he said, well, what is it? What is it? But I said, I'm falling in love with you. And uh, th- that began at 17, um, then for the next six years began um, a relationship where he, everything got all blurry and lines were crossed and boundaries weren't kept. And I was so young and I didn't know how to ask you know, for help. I didn't understand what I was getting into, really. And I'm not sure he did either, but that's really when it started to get complicated. A a romantic relationship? Yes. It started to get physical. Uh, It started to get intimate. Um, We did not uh, until I turned 20, after I turned 20. So it was like two and a half, three years from that disclosure that I was falling in love with him. We did not have intercourse until I turned 20. But we did share rooms. We did, um, you know, virtually everything else that two people who are attracted to each other. And all the while, um, trying to keep my tennis career uh, intact um, and going through, now that I look back on it, and I have had now some, during the pandemic, I had some therapy sessions about this trauma. I mean, it was a trauma to have my first relationship uh, be with my coach. Um, you know, there were so many times where I realized my performance on the court was just so uh, messed up because of the emotions I was feeling. I mean, sometimes the worst would be the anger I would feel and the jealousy I would feel when his wife would come to tournaments. And then we were no longer just the two of us. And I would go back to my hotel room alone. And it was, you know, it was just like, and I, I, I felt like it, it, was a, it was a secret. I feel like I, I didn't, I never did tell my mom. One of the reasons why I feel like I want to tell my story, one of the many reasons is it, it's time to tell the story. It's time for this to come out of like the, the closets, like players who maybe you've played in the past, maybe someone like myself be the first to tell their story in great detail. There have been others, but to tell the story, maybe it'll help others, you know, 
players realize maybe in today's game why it can hurt your performance, it can hurt your life, it can hurt your patterns in relationships, and why it's um, you need to be educated and, and know how to go get help if you start to feel that the boundaries are being crossed. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but the the impression I get is that this isn't about blame or about one person. This is about a relationship dynamic which exists throughout not just tennis but sport, but obviously we're talking about tennis, that um, exposes people to this sort of abuse. I don't know if you're okay with me using the word abuse. That, that, that that's I'm not using that to, to lay blame, yeah. but... I mean, it's an it's an unhealthy, abusive relationship dynamic. Correct, it is. Um, and I've thought about the word abuse. And um, having become a middle school tennis coach, I had to go through all the safeguarding training that you go through. And I know that all the different kinds of abuse that's out there that you need to report if you see it or you hear it or you know about it. And I've thought a lot about the, 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 what I suffered from the most – during this six-year relationship was emotional abuse. And it, uh, it's not to say it was intentional. Um, I never felt, ever felt that there was sexual abuse. I was never physically abused. But I can tell you the fact that, you know, this relationship was supposed to be just a coach in a player relationship and it was not supposed to get all involved in the emotions and love was not supposed to and intimacy and sexual relations were not supposed to happen then when it did and then everything that I was dealing with just in a secretive way um, led to me feeling so many horrendous emotions that I look back now and I realize uh, the, the adult in the room needed to really, even in the late 70s, early 80s, needed to be able to stop the situation. I was not the adult in the room. I was still, you know, when it started to develop, I was still a teenager, and I had never, I had never had feelings before for anybody. So I was, and it's not like today. I feel like today, I hope people feel that they can go get help and go reach out for help. Um, back then, it was like I didn't feel like it was available. So I just kind of went about it pretty much alone and trying to just deal deal with it. Do you think if that had been available that you would have reached out? And what, I, what, I, what I'm getting at here is, I mean, I've not been in your situation at all, but I'm not suggesting that for a minute, but you think you're a grown-up, don't you, when you're a teenager? You're obviously a reflection on how vulnerable you were now would be very different, I'm assuming, to when you were in it. How how different were your feelings at the time to how you reflect on them now, I guess, is, is what I'm getting at. Well, they're really different um, because I didn't let myself sort of think about the whole thing very much for decades, really. I just kind of like... Uh, went on with life and I didn't realize things like how that first relationship that lasted for six years that really stunted the growth of my ability to have early normal relationships. Um, It started a pattern where um, I was really attracted to older men and that continued through 
through my life. Um, and maybe the pattern of not uh, understanding boundaries, um, how to keep healthy boundaries. Now, as far as whether or not I would have asked for help had it been available, these are questions obviously I don't know for sure, but let's just face it. I feel like in today's world, there's a lot more chance that you would know to ask for help. And I guess what I'm hoping by telling my story is to encourage young players. And listen, this wouldn't just be young women players. This could be a young male player. Uh, to encourage young or young athletes uh, to 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 know that it's okay to reach out for help and to report something that's not right and and but it's obviously because of the dynamics of the coach player the normal coach player thing you 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 know your coach is there to help you be a better tennis player so you have all this fear. Like, what if I stop the coaching relationship? Is my t- what's my tennis going to do? So there was. I remember feeling all this over over periods of time during the six years, thinking, "Well, is my tennis?" Because I did get back on track. Here's here's an important sort of part to that. You know, I did get back on track with my career pretty soon after that year in the wilderness, not winning matches, feeling all the pressure of the U.S. Open final. So. And I was in the top 10 for almost eight straight years, started the partner doubles partnership that would be record-breaking with Martina, all the while having this, you know, coach as my primary coach and my main relationship. But so I was really afraid that if I ended it, that maybe my tennis would go away as well. Because at the end of the day, he was a really good coach, but he never should have been uh, somebody I had uh, an intimate relationship with. Do you think he knew that? Or do you think he, his level of awareness or denial, um, whether willful or not, was about the situation? I mean, I know he's not not here now, but if you know, how would he react to the word abuse, for example? He would be extremely upset and not uh, probably. Um, you know, I think you have to think about like Australians who he would, if he were alive today, he'd be in his early nineties, you know, grew up at a time when, you know, this kind of language or, uh, you know, it just didn't exist. But, you know, I think if, if he was asked about it in the right way by people um, who are experts in knowing how to kind of deal with this kind of conversation, um, I think he would realize he was a pretty, he was, I I actually, as funny as it sounds, because I know it's, he he was, by the books, he was cheating on his wife, he was doing something with a teenager, Uh, you know, he was, there was a lot there that was wrong, and yet, when I look back at my coach, there was a lot about him that was also honest and authentic, and that made it even more confusing, um, and listen, I, I obviously, I, I liked him. I loved him. I loved him. I fell in love with him. And so it's all about kind of like, how do we help young players recognize, you know, the, the, the traps, the feelings, the things that can happen in this tennis world where you're on the road and you're traveling and, and you're going back to hotel rooms and you're together a lot more than normal jobs 
It's it's a very um, that's why it's happened time and time again over decades. And this is just my story, but I've you know I know about things through every generation of every player since before I started to you know today's world. So uh, I'm. I, I just want it to continue to change and give the players, the young players, a better chance to recognize how to stop it. Because at the end of the day, if they can just keep the boundaries on the professional relationships, their performance as players on the court will be better and their life will be healthier emotionally, mentally, and their relationships in time at, develop in a normal time normal ways it it will give them a better base for having normal relationships as they go through life i know you're not here to to tell other people's story for the, for them this is about your story um but in terms of the prevalence of this kind of not necessarily the specifics being the same but this kind of dynamic this unhealthy dynamic ha- how prevalent do you think it is both now and and at the time that you were in this situation? Too prevalent. I think there have been um, relationships that have blurred the lines of coach-player relationship frequently. I think the word abuse has been there, not just emotional abuse, but other kinds of abuse. Um, I think that Many players, uh, it started also when they were pretty young. And I now have even more empathy now that I'm kind of dealing with, um, you know, the effects of it um, all these decades later. You know, I I feel for every one of the players who uh, didn't know how to stop uh, the boundaries from being crossed, were maybe afraid to reach for help, maybe thought... They needed to please their coach or their team member. Um, And I'm just hoping that, um, you know, 2022 and beyond, that the educational programs, the programs, the helplines, the phone numbers that you can call, the people that you trust on the the tour or on, uh, who who knows, family members, like, do I wish I had gone to my parents? That's something I actually asked myself a fair bit. I was really afraid, afraid to talk to my parents. It's like the only secret I ever kept from them, especially my mom. Eventually, eventually I told my dad many years after it started. Actually, I think I, I first told him right about the time where I was able to end it. And uh, But I never told my mom. I don't know how many times my mom would be asked in front of me, um, and it might be you know, friends in Baltimore or friends where she grew up in Southern California or somewhere, they'd ask about what it was like in my early career and this and that. Or someone would ask her, well, how much tennis did, how much did you travel with Pam? Specifically, I can just, I remember this like so many times and she would say, well, I had an eight and a half year old at home, so I couldn't travel, but she had this coach and um, he was her chaperone. And that's exactly how she would say it over and over again. He was her chaperone. And what a chaperone should do is keep somebody safe. And I just knew after hearing her say that so many times, there's just no way I could have ever told her um, that this 
the chaperone situation wasn't safe and that I really wish he had come out on tour with me. It was you that ended it. Yeah. Um, we, bo- we both knew it was time, but it was like I had to step away from the tour. Um, I had figured out I was about 23, 24 years of age, right about that year I turned 24, when I just realized it was time. And I couldn't do it while still playing. So I took a several-month sabbatical. I didn't tell anybody why other than I just was like a little burned out and I needed to take a break. And I knew I needed to, like, not see him for months. And I know I knew I needed to hire a new coach. So I started that um, search. And um, I, I was able to find a new coach. And I had two main coaches after that. Um, over many years. One lasted about five years and another one lasted uh, another about five, six years. And the the lines never crossed with either one of those two coaches. Um, And um, this is part of, you know, that I'm maybe, I don't want to say the word proud, but we never, once it ended, it never went back. So the 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 physical sexual relationship ended we were able and this was hard but not impossible and it was more like a coaching consultant he never traveled with me full time again but he did still uh help me occasionally just as a coach but that was after that several month pause so you know and I uh, and I I'll give credit to both sides because it would he never made another there was never another attempt by either one of us to restart it. So um, I, I was able to figure out how to get out of it somehow. And I journaled, I journaled, I journaled. That was one of my – it was actually the year I wrote my book, Passing Shots. And it was – what's weird is I wrote my book, which was a diary a year on the tour. And I never disclosed in the book about this. But I wrote about plenty of other things about the emotions of traveling on the tour um, but the physical uh, exercise of writing helped me uh, get through that stage. The, the fact that you're only telling this story now um, and the fact that you, you, know, you did write that book and chose not to disclose it, that, I mean, I can see the release now um, telling the story, but did, does the feeling, the, the cumulative feeling of, not being able to tell it, the internalizing of it, I'm guessing that does some damage. Yeah. I didn't know it. I didn't know because, um, yeah. When, listen, when you keep something this big and you never share it with with your your parents, eventually I did tell my, my siblings knew after it was over. Um, my, a lot of my best friends on the tour knew. And did they feel unable to say something – or did, were they just not quite aware of of it being unhealthy? Was it fear? You mean my was, friends on the yeah, tour? The people that were aware at the time was it was it fear? Was it lack of awareness themselves? Was it um, sort of delicacy? Well, what? first off, there were a lot of other blurred relationships on the tour at the same time. Um, there were, uh, 
some employees of the tour with players. There was some uh, co- other coaches with players. There was so there was just a lot of it around. So it wasn't just you know wasn't like just this one situation. It wasn't you know a big huge scandal. It mm-hmm. was no, dare I say normalized. Uh, now that I look back at it, it was too much normalized, too much, and. I'm I'm really I do believe that there's been progress in that uh that in today's world if some if if somebody as young as me started a relationship with a member of my team I feel and I know this from having spoken to uh some people in the medical uh uh team at the tour that they would step in but there was nothing nothing like that, you know, 40-some-odd years ago. Nothing at all. If And I'm going to tell a, a funny story, and I'm going to say the name of the player who asked me for the first time if we were having an affair because I nearly fell over. I was like – I was playing a, a tournament in Montreal, Canada. I believe it was 1980. So I was 18 years. It was the summer I turned 18. So it had just been going on for maybe a year. And it was Virginia Wade in the locker room. And Virginia said, Pam, are you and your coach having an affair? And I swear, I nearly, like, I didn't know. I just, I immediately denied it. And I just, like, I just couldn't believe. So that was the first time that somebody said something to me uh, out in the open. And I just, like, I really, I can remember feeling like, oh. Was it your desire to keep it secret or was it him because he was married was there everything was there shame there was shame there was time absolutely when i look back now it was like he was 33 years older he was married he's my coach i knew it wasn't i knew it wasn't quote unquote right um so yeah i there was a lot of all that there and then as i said the worst of it the worst of it was when I would then have to switch gears in the middle of, say, a four-week road trip. And his wife, who was lovely and a friend of my family's and, you know, lovely, but I couldn't stand it when she showed up. And, you know, obviously it was just – it was horrible. And then I – instead of going back to a hotel room with someone I was in love with, I went back to my hotel room. I was alone. And I can't even tell you how many nights I just sobbed in my room. It was terrible. And then the next day, you know, I have to try and get up and play a match and – you know, it's uh, that's what I'm saying about like the story. Hopefully, can help people realize that at the end of the day, not only is it not good for you as a person in your relationship, understanding how to build healthy relationships, but a lot of players, if they understand it's bad for their performance, that may be an incentive enough to stop some of it from happening. Within the structure of tennis. I mean, it, it, you know, it's very, it's very rarely, to, very, very rare. I suppose there's, you know, increasing players going through the college system, but it's it's quite rare to turn pro, you know, after the age of even seventeen, eighteen. Um, your coach is the only person that's there with you on the road, day in, day out, in a very lonely situation. The putting up of professional boundaries. I, I'm, I'm putting my. I'm trying to, you know, it's, it's a stretch, but I'm trying to put myself in that situation. I can totally understand why you don't want the boundaries there, 
because you know the need for an emotional an emotional connection and an emotional crutch in that sort of situation how practically how practically can you prevent that and not make it disconnecting for players to to put barriers up around them and to be afraid to make emotional connections for fear that those emotional connections might not be healthy well it, it i i used the word complicated a few times earlier and what you've just spoken about there is right at the core of the complications. What a, pl- a player has to realize is that each person on their team has their job to do and then how to kind of draw literally. You can envision the boundaries, um, and that's a word, honestly, I didn't understand until I was into my 40s, to be honest. But I think... It's an exercise that needs to be a part of the training uh, for everyone who plays the tour, Is ha- whether it's with the media, how to keep healthy boundaries, how to keep healthy boundaries with the fans, how to keep healthy boundaries with other players, maybe your doubles partner, obviously everybody on your team, family members. You know, like you have to know how to, as a very young person who wants to excel in, in this, this case the sport of tennis, if you can learn how to keep healthy boundaries with all of the people involved in your life, your agents, every member of your team, you will become a better tennis player. You will become a healthier person. Um, and you, I believe you'll have more success. This isn't about, um, you know, pointing the finger at the WTA. This is about shedding light. Um, as I understand it, and um, starting a conversation, a conversation that hopefully leads to to change. What would have helped then and what would help now? Well, first off, um, I, the, the tour is set up so differently now than it was then. But there's also so many more members of the teams, it's like, and, and a lot of times the WTA through the years use the, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, we're not employees. There's only so much they can do. Um, it's a work, it's a very funny workplace because when you go to a tournament, actually you're, you're, you're going to the workplace at a tournament that's owned by tournaments. So, or, or you go to the workplace and it's owned by the All England Club or by uh, one of the other majors. So the tour is one entity, but I don't, I, I actually believe this should be something that Tennis United looks at together. And that, because again, abuse and crossing over of lines is not just something that happens on the women's tour. I want to make that perfectly clear. So I believe the sport needs to look at this through every one of its seven main entities as well as especially when players are developing. I believe the the federations need to really start the education because by the time most players reach the tour, a lot of the die has already been cast. So there needs to be cooperation through 
all those aspects. And, and I'll say the coaching organizations like the USPTA, the USPTR, that would be the main ones in the U.S., but all the other coaching organizations where you have to get credentialed to be a coach. Well, in order to be credentialed to be a coach, you need to go through a lot of training on safeguarding your players and your the players that you're coaching. So I I would like to see the way like the age eligibility rule came together with an expert panel to tr- to come up with the rule change. I believe that that kind of an expert panel needs to come together and um come together in 2022 um and I know the WTA is already planning on some major changes in this area starting in January of 2023 but I think that they need all the other entities to join them. Is it a case of um it's too easy in tennis to say this isn't my jurisdiction? Or you know there there are so many gray areas that don't fall under officially anyone's jurisdiction and I guess that it shouldn't entirely be incumbent on the victims that the the victims should be empowered and it should be possible for them to to talk about what's happening but the coaches the 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 emphasis should be on the coaches I don't know I'm I don't want to put words into your mouth at all but the well here's the here's the thing um, most players on both sides, men's and women's, have several members of their team now. So it's not just about who's teaching you how to become a better tennis player on the court. You've got practice partners. You've got physical trainers that, you know, are trying to keep the athletes healthy. And that's a whole that's a whole nother thing because that's like, you know, dealing with your body and um, – you know, I've seen some situations actually here uh, during a tournament I'm working in Indian Wells. It was like it was just where, where, you know, you see even in public spaces sometimes hands in places where you're like, what? But, you know, I guess a physical tr- physio, you know, they're saying, well, I'm in public. I'm doing something. But I just want players to realize that, like, you know what, having – someone's hand on private parts even if you have clothes on that's like you got to really know that you got to know about that and think about that is that a boundary you're okay with and maybe maybe it's okay in some such situations but it's one of those areas that when i see it it kind of triggers a real deep down discomfort for me and a part of it is also you know, I listened a lot to um, the whole gymnastics uh, situation when, when the Nasser trial and all the the victims who stepped forward with their impact statements one after another after another gymnasts over de- over generations and generations of young young gymnasts who were, you know, abused by this doctor that was uh, entrusted. And, you know, a lot of it was like hands in positions that never should have been that was it was an abusive situation and parents were sometimes in the room i mean this is how this is how it can can be where and then 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 sometimes player players or athletes realize later oh my god i was abused they don't even recognize it at the time because of either their age so again that's that that's not necessarily part of my story 
but and I and I really want to. I'd prefer to kind of stay to my story. Um, but yeah, your gut tells you certain things because you 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 see you'll see an anger, you'll see uh, an exchange, and you'll see it over time on the tour. Many matches from the courtside position, and I've often thought, hmm, that didn't look healthy to me. I I can't tell you how many times in the I've been now. Uh, broadcasting while I started before I stopped playing I mean it's been you know like 30 30 some odd years uh, and I can't even tell you how many times I've thought to myself that exchange didn't look healthy to me but I didn't know 100% trying to find solutions which is kind of what we're talking about now it is complex but people need to talk about it it needs to come out of like the dark places of our sport and and athletes who've been negatively impacted by relationships that crossed boundaries i hope some of them will feel like me that it's time to talk about it so that we can find solutions i know the structure of tennis is is pretty unique but are you aware of any other sports that have looked at this and have found solutions? Are there learnings for tennis from other sports? Or is this an example of an instance where tennis needs to to lead the way? Obviously, you want to look at best practices and see if there's any out there. I I actually feel like some some high schools and even some schools uh, that my kids attend, I, I know policies that are in place in schools there's some pretty good ones there. So maybe you can look at some best practices that aren't involved with sports, but they're involved with making sure that young students or young children, people are kept safe. Um, So look at everything, look at everything, look for the best practices um, everywhere. And that's part of what I think that commission would be able to do is take, take enough time to investigate and who is doing it the best. But I do think that tennis can lead the way here and and end up with the best safeguarding policies so that future generations of young players coming onto the tour have the best chance to know how to keep their professional relationships professional and not have them cross over into the blurred boundaries of personal relationships that can be abusive. This is about your story and not about anybody else's, but equally we know there are others. We're not going to talk about the specifics, but if there were somebody else listening, a player, past, present, whether it's happening now or it's happened in the past, with whom your story is resonating, what would you say to them? I think there's I believe there's people right now they can report it to at the WTA tour. I feel like there's people in the health services department. I feel like uh, they have to find who is their trusted who who is the trusted person that you you can tell. Um and and sometimes that can be confusing for a young person as well. Um and there and I know there can be a lot of fear in stepping forward. Um so I'm I'm not saying it's going to be easy and there's going to be a lot of uh, situations where the athlete isn't going to feel comfortable to step forward. But 
all I can hope is that more will step forward, but more importantly, at a younger age, more will be educated to know how to not have it happen to them. Because I think it's possible. Thank you, Pam. I'm, I'm blown away by your strength. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tie break or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Well, folks, I'm sure you'll agree, an incredibly difficult listen, uh, but an incredibly powerful one too. So brave and so important of Pam to tell her story and to tell it so calmly, so eloquently um, and so powerfully. I really think she is going to make a difference um, by doing just that. And we are very honoured, actually, that she chose the podcast as her place to do that. She's also written a piece uh, alongside Simon Briggs uh, that ran in The Telegraph today. Uh, we as a podcast will be reacting to Pam's story when we record on Sunday. Matt and David will both be back for that. We'll also be interviewing Steve Simon on this subject and on a number of other subjects on Friday. Um, before that, though, we do have a statement from the WTA uh, in response to Pam's story. They say the WTA is dedicated to ensuring a safe environment across the tour. Safeguarding requires vigilance and we are continuing to invest in education, training and resources 
to improve our efforts. The health and safety of all WTA stakeholders, including the players, is our priority and our commitment to safeguarding remains resolute. So that's their statement for now. As I say, though, we will be speaking to Steve Simon on Friday for a more in-depth conversation. Uh, They say this is the preferred way to discuss this very important topic and the bravery Pam has shown in telling her story. Um, And it's that bravery that I think um, we should all end on. We've worked incredibly closely with Pam over the course of the last few weeks since it became clear that she felt ready to tell this story. Um, And that's been difficult at times, I'm sure, more so for her than anybody else. But it's also been an absolute privilege to work with her so closely. And I'm in awe uh, of what she's done just there by telling that story so Well done, Pam. Um, And thank you for listening. As I say, we will be reacting in full on Sunday and there is plenty more on this to come. Hopefully this is just the start of a very overdue and important conversation that Pam has just started in the tennis world. So well done, Pam. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you soon. 